0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, senior features and analysis writer. And I'm Emily Burt, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quickfire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing some of the challenges that charities face with banking. And in our good news section, we'll also be talking about a cutting-edge land's end to John O'Groat's fundraising trip. But first, we do have a couple of parish notices, uh, as it were. So first up, last night, our very own Emily Burt won the Fiona McPherson New Editor Award at the British Society of Magazine Editors Awards. Congratulations. Uh, oh. Utterly well-deserved. Thank I'm you. so chuffed about this. I feel very uh, embarrassed about this, but I am, yeah, I'm super chuffed. I'm just so pleased that I get to represent this brilliant title. Third Sector is a really special magazine. Specialist media is important. And I, you know, a good editor is really only ever as good as the team around them. So, you know, I'm just very lucky to work with great people like you for... As long as I can. Well, that is a slightly <laughs> sore point, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> so yes, so a quick update about this podcast and some personal news. Uh, this is going to be my last episode of the Third Sector podcast because I will be leaving Third Sector at the end of the week. I am in an incredibly lucky position where I'm really, really excited about my new job, but I am genuinely gutted to be leaving Third Sector. I've just had the most amazing time here and I really feel like I've grown up here, professionally speaking, You know, working with some fantastic journalists you know, the current team, you, Andy uh, Andy Ricketts, Russell, Alina, as well as kind of many former colleagues, including particularly Andy Hillier, who was, as editor, kind of generous and brave enough to take the plunge and let us start up this podcast. Um, and our former digital editor, David Hobbs, who just did an, a lot of the early leg work to get us in the position to hit record for the first time. I, yeah, like working with all of you has been amazing and I have loved working on this podcast it has just been so much fun and we've had so many great producers you know Anushka Tate who I feel like should you, you ever seen the scene in Black Books where he goes to his accountant and and like he's like emptying out of his pockets and they's just like well that's April that's other and that's misc and it's just crumpled bits of paper yes and then he turns it into a smoking jacket which I always enjoyed yes yeah and I feel like we did that to Anushka I just kind of gave her some crumpled up notes and went can we have a podcast, please? And she showed us how to make a podcast. Um, you know, Lindsay Riley really held our hands through the pandemic, and then Aidan and Joe, who have figured out the new studio space that we're working in with us, sort of post-pandemic, um, and it, they've just been fantastic. And you know, the audience response has been brilliant as well. Like, it's great to know that you guys are out there listening, and you yeah, know, it's it's been brilliant. And, um, you know, just generally reporting on the charity sector has been an absolute privilege. You know, I think as as a journalist, I think you're always a bit wary about getting a bit too gushy about the area you're reporting on. You know, you kind of want to keep that kind of critical friend distance. But like for all its flaws and for every scandal and every bully, there are genuinely 100 people dedicated to hurling themselves at some of the world's most complex problems. And just having a front row seat to that. And not only that, but getting to just ask people questions about what they're doing and why has just been absolutely incredible. And I'm just really grateful to everyone who has shared their expertise with me or like trusted me with their stories over the past seven years. It's been amazing and I'm going to miss it immensely. Absolutely. And seven years is an extraordinary tenure for any reporter to have with a brand. Um, And third sector has been so much the better. For having had you on the team Um, and specifically to do with this podcast in a a fit of nostalgia. I actually went back and downloaded some of our first podcast (laughs) episodes to listen to on my way into work this morning. And Rebecca, I don't know if you're aware, but the first ever episode that you and I recorded together was released on the 5th of July 2019, which will line up almost exactly with the end of this week, which does mean that you are leaving me on our third anniversary I'm Which very it, sorry. How could you? I'm very upset about that. It feels uh, like you planned it this way, but very sorry. We will always have the puns. Yes, we will. And and in all seriousness, you know, I will ask our listeners to indulge me just for a moment more. Uh, I think it's no exaggeration to say that this podcast exists because of you. Um, a little over three years ago, you took it on yourself to build a new channel for Third Sector entirely from scratch. And from the very beginning, you have been so ambitious with the Third Sector podcast. I mean, in your very first episode, you tackled the very light and airy subject matter of diversity in fundraising. (laughs) And you didn't stop there. And, you know, ever since this podcast has grown and flourished. I'm going back to my numbers from when I was submitting for us for an award that we, you know, should have won earlier (laughs) this year. Yeah, spoilers, Um, we didn't. But, you know, being nominated (laughs) was great anyway. But our audience grew more than 200% in the space of last year. And this is really, it's down to your hard work and your creativity. And on that personal note, I feel so lucky to have been your co-host for the last three years. And whenever anybody who listens to this podcast comes and speaks to me or says anything about it, they always say the same thing. Without fail, they say, you sound like you are having so much fun. (laughs) And I have had so much fun Doing this every week with you. Me too. Um, Me too. I'm going to miss it enormously, which is no shade to poor Andy and Russell, who are going (laughs) to have to start coming in and doing this with me every week now. Um, You are a phenomenal journalist in every sense of the world. I know that you're going on to brilliant things. Um, At Third Sector, we are all going to miss you. But uh, it's just very exciting to see someone growing and going on to an even bigger challenge. Um, And actually as we're on the subject here we've got you <clears throat> this uh leaving gift which oh wow we wow. would like you to uh donate that to a charity of your choice sorry Emily is this is this a suitcase full of cash yes no we we just thought this was the um you know the simplest way of doing things well, that's very kind but like is this is this normal is... well i mean it's good enough for prince charles So I think if there's a royal precedent being set there, this is this is probably just the way we do things from now on. So, uh, you know, it's heavy. uh, Take it um, and don't leave it on the train. Um, But also, you never saw that suitcase and it didn't come from me. OK, great. Well, I shall get my people to count it, I guess. Uh, Thank you very much. Very (laughs) kind of you. Um, Well, that leads us very nicely into our main story for this week. So last week, the Civil Society Group, which is a coalition of voluntary sector umbrella bodies, published its first report. And the report was looking into the difficulties which many charities face when accessing banking facilities.
1: Yes, the report
0: included a survey of more than 1,200 voluntary organisations. And it concluded that for small charities in particular, the services they need are unavailable or unsuitable for voluntary organisations. The report also concludes that online banking is not well designed for small charities. It found the problem was so bad that some charities have been forced to hold money in personal accounts or keep cash at home, possibly in suitcases. Who knows? I mean, if you can't give it to a royal for safekeeping, what can you do to it? Uh, Our colleague, senior reporter Russell Hargrave, wrote about this for our website last week. Uh, He joined me to chat to Dr. Claire Mills, Director of Policy and Communications at the Charity Finance Group, about the report's conclusions and what can be done to support small charities. (laughs) So Claire, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rebecca and Russ. Good to be here. No, it's great to have you. So this is the first report we've seen from the civil society group. Why did this seem like a good place to start?
1: So I think I wouldn't really call it the start because the civil society group has come out of the collaboration between infrastructure organisations that really developed from necessity, but also in a fantastic way during the pandemic we came together over so many things in the pandemic we worked together on lobbying government on putting all of our efforts into collaborating and in talking to government particularly about um what charities needed what the voluntary sector needed during the pandemic starting off with intensely lobbying for that sector specific support that was really welcome you know, it wasn't enough. I never thought I'd say £750 million is not <laughs> enough money, but it was one of only two sector-specific um, awards from the government. So that's really where collaboration began to intensify. And the civil society group is a way to build on the strengths of that collaboration and take that forward for the long term. The banking issues or issues that we've been hearing about for probably getting on for a year now, there's been a lot of anecdotal reporting of, oh, my charity found this problem with with their bank or oh we've been trying to change our mandate for six months and it's driving us around the bend so this is a really practical area where the sector was telling us telling all of the infrastructure organizations that they were encountering problems we decided after some earlier work this year that one of the things to do would be to get some more robust data on that um anecdotes are great but hard cases make bad law you go into um lobbying government or talking to uk finance and say this charity is having a problem with this count well that's a specific problem so they should take it up with their bank so a survey seemed a good place to start Um, we have surveyed the charity sector relentlessly since the start of the pandemic but hopefully people are now realizing that filling in a survey might take five minutes of your time but the cumulative impact of that evidence can be really powerful This is a case in point. We opened the survey. We thought we might get 200 responses. And by the time we closed it, we had 1,265. And I know there are a lot more organisations out there, a lot more people out there with stories to tell. So we still want people to get in touch and tell us their story. We've had other examples of collaboration between sector bodies. This is going on all the time. We've had some work going on between infrastructure bodies on dismantling racism and responding to the Home Truths report from Voice for Change and Akivo. CFG, we did some work earlier this year with Pro Bono Economics to produce the Economic Outlook briefing. So collaboration, I hope, is something that the sector will continue to develop, continue to use. We've all got different strengths and when we work together, when we come together collaboratively, I think we can do so much more Particularly when it's something that's not a very niche issue that's only affecting a small group of one organisation's members or a small group of charities. When it's something like this, collaboration's got to be the way forward.
2: Um, And I enjoyed reading the report, if enjoyed is the right word, because it does expose those kind of classic wicked problems, really. It's, It's very, very complicated. It looks like it might be quite hard to solve um, for the small charities who have been affected by sort of quite bad banking practices, and it clearly affects tons and tons of uh, small charities, tons and tons of volunteers and trustees. How surprised were you all when you read the findings?
1: I'd love to say it came as a total shock to me, Russell, and we were disappointed. But actually, I wasn't surprised at all. It just bore out the anecdotal stories that we'd been hearing. I worked for an MP for a long time, and so I've come across a lot of things that seem complex and hard to solve and affect a lot of people. And the main thing I've found in those situations is quite often it comes down to communication. And you might have one group of stakeholders, in this case, let's call them the charities, and another group of stakeholders, let's call them the banks, who simply, for whatever reason and through nobody's fault, nobody's badness, don't necessarily have a very clear understanding of what each other needs or how each other operates. So I think this is going to be a complex problem. It is going to be challenging and it's not going to be a quick fix. You know, this is going to take some time to unravel and it's also going to be, right, let's unravel this little bit, let's unravel this bit. But I think the way to go through it is to just bring people together and start building that understanding. Talk to the banks about what the charity sector is finding challenging, what the difficulties are, what the problems are, and some of those will be different for different groups of organisations, whether that's rural organisations or particularly small charities or ones that are entirely volunteer led, but also talking to the sector about why banks are having to do certain things, trying to build that understanding. So we heard a lot about um, people feeling frustrated about the lengths they needed to go through to prove their identity and to complete various forms. Some of that stuff isn't down to the individual banks, it's down to the money laundering regulations. We know that banks have had to take an increasingly regulated approach to reducing money laundering or reducing the risk of money laundering. They're not trying to pick out charities as particular proponents of money laundering. They're just trying to manage that risk. But explaining and understanding that on the charity sector side may help reduce some of that frustration and in, and just help make the process a little bit smoother.
0: That makes a lot of sense. and. One of the things that really struck me about the report was around sort of the particular challenges that charities are finding around online banking. I have been online banking for years. I literally can't remember the last time I was in a bank branch. I think it might have been when I applied for a mortgage or like opened a joint account or something with my husband or something. Like I can't remember. Um And so, yeah, I was really sort of struck by that because, you know, in, in my mind, most banking happens online. Most people interact with their banks online these days. So why is it that charities are struggling with online banking? What are the challenges there for them?
1: Some of the issue we found was really it's not that it's not that there's a lack of will. We found a lot of people who weren't using online banking did actually want to do that. They could see the advantages to it. I guess during the pandemic, we've all become a lot more used to doing things digitally and particularly to doing things without cash. So there's a will to use online banking. But it's really, again, this mismatch between perhaps the products and the way they're put together by the banks and the needs of the charities. Um, I mentioned rural charities earlier, and that's particularly an issue for them can be the access or availability of high speed, reliable broadband. In some areas, there might be no reliable mobile broadband. So if you haven't got a fixed broadband in a place where you can use that, it might not work. Some places that broadband just isn't available. So we need to make sure if people are going to have to go digital, that they're going to be able to get access to the infrastructure that they need for that. And I'm meaning infrastructure in telecoms terms, they're not charity infrastructure. <laughs> um, I think some of the issues as well go back to just simple things. So If you're a charity and you need two signatories on a cheque, you might have to post those cheques from one person to the other and then they post it onto whoever you're paying. But it's quite straightforward to do that. But a lot of people have told us that they couldn't have dual authorisation on payments with an online account. Some people told us they could, some people told us they couldn't. So I guess that comes down to the different products that are available from different banks. But when you're thinking about risk, when you're thinking about managing control and maintaining control of the, your resources, your financial resources, dual authorization seems quite a straightforward thing to to need. So that's another issue to go back to the banks and say, "Hey, how, you know, if you don't offer this, can you explain how your keeping how people's money will still be safe. How are you going to encourage them to manage that risk? So there's a a few things to unpick there. There's access to the infrastructure. There's understanding of the needs and trying to make sure, again, it comes down to understanding each other's situation.
2: And why do you think some of those services aren't available or aren't very well organised for charities? What do you think the banks are missing?
1: I do think I am going to take a bit of a pop at the banks here. And I Hmm. do think... (laughs) Um, It comes down to a lack of knowledge about the complexities sometimes that you find in, not in charity as an action, but in charity as a governance structure. So in all of the different forms people can have, whether they're a social enterprise, a registered charity. I heard today about a charitable trust that was asked for a set of documents by a bank and they'd just been trying to change their mandate. And this was months in, still being asked for a form of document that hasn't been used for many years When charitable trusts first existed, they had a specific form of documents. Those no longer exist. This was a newer charitable trust. So the bank was showing a fundamental lack of understanding about what the governance structures was, what the various bits of documentation were that they needed. And that was quite simply a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. So if we can do something to produce a simple guide for banks on different charity structures and what they have, that might be a start. I think as well there's an element there, though, that the banks will have people in their charities department working on you know, understanding charity accounts, but does it come down to the people on the end of the phone or the people at the end of the chat, the live chat, or people in branches? And we know people in branches. Branches have been closing. We've got far fewer branches than we used to have. People in branches are no longer there's not as many of them they've got pressure on their time they can't be experts in everything and it's not fair to expect them to be experts in everything but it is fair to be able to say to them no this is the information that our organization uses this is our structure this is our paperwork these are our documents please don't tell us that we're wrong (laughs) because we're the experts in ourselves (laughs)
0: Yes, I can imagine that being incredibly frustrating. Um, And yeah, so we've talked about some of the services that aren't available or where there's a lack of understanding. But the other thing that kind of came out of this report was that the services that are available aren't suited to the way that charities operate. And we've touched on it a little bit already. But what are some of the issues that charities are
1: encountering there? And what problems is that creating in turn? So one of the things we saw, particularly through the pandemic, I think that's resolving itself to an extent now was just the amount of time it was taking to open a bank account. Um, If charities decided to change banks for whatever reason, and some of them we did see um, when HSBC introduced charging for their charity bank accounts, there were a big number of organisations trying to open new accounts with other financial institutions. And coping with that level of demand, that surge, At the same time as people are still recovering from the pandemic, we'll give them a pass on that because we know that things haven't gone back to how they were before. But having to process all that paperwork, I've said about the amount of paperwork there is relating to money laundering, that has to be gone through for a new account. They can't necessarily do that. So that's been a problem. It's understanding that charities signatories are likely to be trustees, who are volunteers, who give up their time freely. But those volunteers, those trustees may have full-time jobs, they may have caring responsibilities. It may be, if I were to go not to one of the branches in my local town, but to a different bank, I could have a 40-50 mile round trip for that journey, living in a rural area. So it's understanding the time pressures, the availability, the accessibility. Some of it we've heard of people struggling to prove their ID because they haven't necessarily had the right documents that the bank needed. In the case of people who've lived in the same address for a long time, or who don't travel abroad, they might not have a passport, they might not have a driving licence. We don't always get paper bills now to prove your address. So a lot of those things have been coming up time and again as, you know, what are we meant to do about this? How are we meant to do this? I think as well, one of the issues is still the reliance on cash and cheques by some organisations. Now, I, I looked in my checkbook before this podcast to see when I last wrote a cheque. And I can tell you that since 2016, I've written one cheque. <laughs> and that was earlier this year. And it was to a local charity where I needed to pay my membership by cheque. I think banks... In particular, you know, they're conscious of the amount of time and resource it takes them to process cheques and cash. And we've all been discouraged. You know, there's been a lot of nudge theory going on, hasn't there? Trying to get people away from the expensive forms of doing transactions to more digital, more online, more paperless transactions or going contactless. We've heard from some charities, particularly those where their donors are older people who are perhaps more familiar with cheques, that they still want to write cheques, they still want to make donations by check in the same way that your nan might still want to put a tenner in the post to you for your birthday rather than going online and pinging £10 into your account. That's just an evolution that's going to happen. So it's still creating problems. I don't think they're problems that are going to last forever, but there's a long tail to this shift away from cash and check. There's going to be a long tail to it. So And we need to still enable people to Make transactions in a way that suits them, particularly if we 're relying on donor income
0: yeah and I mean one of the things in the report that really kind of kind of caught me short was that there seemed to be Uh, problems with uh, banks requiring charities to have a certain amount before they deposit it. And if they're getting small donations, that was requiring people to either put the money into a personal bank account or store it in their own homes, which got me thinking of like, you know, the Father Ted joke about, oh, it was just resting in my account. like (laughs) It's literally creating that situation, which, you know, is a bit of a red flag for poor financial issues. You know, you're always hearing about the charity commission sort of saying, oh, you know, this bank, this charity kept paying stuff into trustees' personal accounts and it's kind of seen as being a bit of a red flag for poor financial governance. Um, And they're being forced to almost by the banks, right?
1: And that's why I think I spoke to um, people at the Charity Commission last week and they have been incredibly supportive with this piece of work. Um, The Charity Commission, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they're aware of this as a risk. We see it as a governance risk. It is putting charity funds at risk, but it's also putting people's individual reputations at risk. You know, I would hate it if I was, out of the goodness of my heart, holding some money to pass over to a charity and then suddenly someone's going, well, you you kept that money? You kept that for a while? You know, that's not great. We don't want to go back to the days of people having money in a tin that they keep in the sideboard. (laughs) That's not great either. We want people to be able to follow good governance, follow good financial reporting and controls and have an audit trail that's the other thing, you know. If somebody's given me 50, given fifty pounds to a charity, we want to see that fifty pounds banked so that it's in the right place. It doesn't need to be sat in a tin or put in someone else's account and then passed through. It, muddy, it muddies the waters. We know charities rely so heavily on public trust, and this is creating a situation that could erode public trust. I would hate to see that happen, just because we have a situation where banks and charities aren't really understanding what each other needs to work the best.
2: Why can't banks just offer a standardized account, a specialist charity account agreed across the industry that then all and any charities can access? I mean, maybe it's a stupid question, but what what's the barrier to banks doing that?
1: There's no stupid questions, Russ, you know that. <laughs> oh, well, let's let,
2: let's see. Let's see how long I can keep asking questions before you change your mind.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, do you know, when I first started thinking about this situation, I did wonder if that might be a possible solution in the same way that we had the post office card account, which came in when um, benefits, I think, in particular, were needed to be paid into a bank account and people couldn't go and cash their gyros or cash their cheques. And that post office card account was a very simple thing. It then became branded, I think, as a basic bank account and other banks began to offer it as well. And maybe that would be a solution. I don't think the banks will be very keen Um, for the simple reason that they like a bit of competition. They like to be able to demonstrate what makes them different, what makes them the best um, in terms of capturing particular shares of the market. So I don't think that would – it might work, but I don't think it's necessarily a goer. That's probably the best way to think about that. One other thing that we've been thinking about as a collective is there is a banking code of basic, you know, what people can expect. It relates to personal banking and it's what people can expect when they – engage with a financial institution and it's around clarity of communication, speed of response, all those different things. I'd like us to talk to UK Finance about whether we can have a similar model for charity bank accounts, whatever charity community bank accounts, whatever the individual banks want to call them. It doesn't matter if they're the same or if they offer different features. What matters is how people can engage with their bank how charity trustees, how treasurers, how finance officers can have that relationship with their bank and understand what they could reasonably expect. And then if you've got something like that, you can say, hang on, this isn't really working. Why, isn't, why aren't we communicating in this way? Or why is this a problem for, why is this becoming a problem? So maybe we can try and set some ground rules for communications and for expectation management. And that might really, really help. I will say that, you know aside from this report one of the things that happened earlier this year was we we and the charity commission and uk finance and representatives from the banking sector all went to a meeting at the treasury that the economic secretary to the treasury john glenn mp had arranged um, the charity commission had been very helpful in arranging for uh, me as representing the sector that's a big ask. Uh, but, and I did feel a little bit outnumbered by the number of men in the room. Uh, but anyway, we were there and we had a really good discussion about some of these issues. This was before we'd done the survey. So we only at that point had anecdotal evidence, but they were prepared to listen. And the minister was very helpful. He had been contacted by charities in his own constituency. And I know Acre have gone back. He's a rural constituency and they've gone back with their Um, take their rural take on the data they've gone back to him and and charities in his constituency are going back and going hey look now we've got this he was very keen to see a working group set up with us the commission and uh, the banking sector UK finance are doing that we are going back to them now to say, come on, what's happening with this working group? I have been nudging them. Uh, So hopefully the publication of this report will be a further nudge and we can take that work forward. And that's where I think we're going to be able to start to develop some solutions or at least build that shared understanding and start to manage expectations of what people can and can't have from a bank. So watch this space, I guess, is the, the thing for that. Apart from that, we've called this briefing number one. The data we got from the survey is so rich, there are so many ways we can come and start to look at this, whether it's by size of charity, location of charity, specific causes or specific problems that people are encountering. So this is not the last you've heard from the civil society group Banking Challenges series of reports. Amazing, so one of the things
0: that your report did conclude was that these complex and overlapping challenges cannot be solved by either the voluntary sector, the banks or government alone, but must be tackled collectively. You've spoken a little bit about sort of talking to government and the need to chat to the banks, but how do you envision this collective problem solving happening?
1: A working group is being created and that is going to include people from the sector, so me and hopefully some others, People from UK Banking, UK Finance are bringing this together. I hope representation from the Charity Commission as well. And this is all being done following some heavy nudging from the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. So I don't think it's going to all be solved in one go. I think we will look at the different categories of problem, whether that's around proving your ID, dual authorisation, availability of staff, knowledge for staff. I think we'll break it down into chunks and chip away at different bits I don't know at this stage how we might prioritise those challenges. It might be there are some things that are relatively straightforward that just require a bit of education on both sides. There might be some things that will require looking closer at regulations. That's probably around the money laundering stuff. I, I don't think we're necessarily going to see a winding back of that just because we're a charity don't make us go through the regulation. That's probably not going to happen. But certainly we can look at it. Look at different pieces of the problem and try and unpick them. Looking at it as one big mess, as charity banking challenges, it's helpful to think of it in that way because it's, there's a lot of work to do. But when it comes to untangling it, we need to do it one knot at a time or maybe two or three knots at a time and see how we can unpick it.
2: And are there any of those knots that we haven't mentioned so far? I mean, we've talked about what can the banks do? What can the regulators do? What are charities themselves lobbying for and getting skilled up and that sort of thing? I mean, are there any other players that you think could could get involved here and help out?
1: I think one other piece of work we can do would be to help other people that might be given this as a problem. And one thing I'm always keen on is making sure that MPs caseworkers know where to turn to for help. So as in the case of John Glenn, uh, he's had constituents taking this problem to him. He mentioned that other members of parliament had said to him, hey, minister, I've been hearing from charities about problems they're having with banking. What can we do about this? So if we can produce a simple, here's who to contact guide for MP caseworkers, then any charity that go, or trustee or treasurer that goes in to see their MP at a surgery to say, we're having this problem, their caseworkers, hopefully the MPs themselves will go, we know who to talk to about this and they can talk to NCVO, ACA, CFG, any of the people involved in this conversation.
2: Claire, like me, used to work for an MP. I always feel like there should be a kind of a union for us to kind <laughs> of get together and discuss those years that we spent trying to unpick these problems for constituents. But um, I think
1: it might be a support group, you mean, <laughs> Russell, sort of, not a union.
2: Therapy is very expensive.
0: Um, brilliant. Well, I mean, that—that that is a whole other podcast. Um, but that makes a lot of sense I think that seems like a really kind of a, like a very simple effective idea of just yeah making sure people know
1: where to turn to for help. And, and it could also go to local councillors because quite often you find local councillors are incredibly supportive of the charities in their community particularly the small ones um, because those charities do a lot of good because local councillors generally want their communities to thrive to have lots of good things going on in them. So that's another avenue for sharing that information. Brilliant. Uh, Well, Claire, thank you very much for joining us. It's been really interesting talking to you and I've really enjoyed this. Thank you.
0: Each week, we're bringing you a good news story, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. So what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I have the story of Colin North, who runs a landscaping company called Born to Garden in Canterbury. As we speak, Colin is travelling from Land's End to John O'Groats in order to raise money for the Motor Neurone Disease Association, as well as for the Masonic Charitable Foundation and the Kenwood Trust, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation charity based in Kent. Okay, so I noticed there you say travelling. How how is he making this trip? He is making this trip very, very slowly, uh, because he's completing the eight hundred and eighty-mile route at a maximum of twelve miles an hour astride, a sit-on lawnmower. <laughs> I feel like that's gonna take him like a while. Yeah, I think you're not wrong. Colin is planning to spend roughly 20 hours a day in the mowing seat, uh, which is a long time to spend on a lawnmower, um, by anyone's stretch. And um Well, even more surprisingly, though, it does turn out that this has actually been done before. So there is, in fact, a world record for Colin to beat. In 2017, that record was set at five days, eight hours and 36 minutes. So that's the time that Colin has to beat, uh, but he does say he expects to be causing some form of traffic chaos all of the way. Do you know what? That actually does sound like it's going to be a massive endurance feat. I feel like that's going to be hilarious for about the first 45 minutes of just, I'm on a lawnmower, the traffic has to slow down, and then absolutely mind-numbing for the next five and a half days. Yeah, I hope he has a good podcast to listen to. We can, we can recommend podcasts for you. If you love the charity sector, Colin, um, maybe you could tune into this while you're on the way. But I mean, actually, what I really want to know is, is he also offering to trim people's lawns? Along the way as he goes, because that could potentially be a great way to raise a few extra quid for his special causes. It's the summer; lawns are out of control right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I feel like maybe councils, local councils, could pay him to just do right. the hedges on the way past. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but you know what? Actually, as a form of transport, this does make a kind of sense to me. So. Way back when I was a teenager, I used to ride a little 49cc moped and I had a summer job at B&Q in Western Supermare. And I just have this memory of standing in front of the head trimmers in B&Q and noticing that they were 26cc <laughs> and realising that the vehicle I rode seven miles into work every day was not as powerful as two head trimmers strapped together. Um, so yeah do you know what go for it Colin that sounds great anything is possible and the idea of you riding a little moped around Western Supermare gives me major North Somerset Amelie vibes. <laughs> yeah. Um I hope there's someone playing an accordion on the back I mean, of it, as well. Take everything about Amelie and make it about seventy percent less aesthetically appealing, <laughs> and you probably got it. <laughs> so Colin was inspired to do the ride for MNDA after he watched his father-in-law suffering with the illness. He hopes to raise thirty thousand pounds so that he can give ten thousand pounds to each of his charities, hedging his bets, if you will. <laughs> So, of course, as ever, we will include a link to his GoFundMe in the podcast story on our website. Let's hope he makes the cut. Mm. Sorry. Nightmare. <laughs> um, Rebecca, what story do you have for us? Your final story. Final story. Your final story uh, for the Third Sex it's, podcast. It's a nice one. I like this one. So this is, uh, I've got a story from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, which runs Edinburgh Zoo. And for the first time ever, they have fitted a giant anteater called Nala with a glucose monitor that's usually used on humans. So... Nala was recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, after okay. she, Yeah. And she apparently exhibited the same symptoms which humans often do with the condition. In her case, losing weight, despite eating the same amount of food as usual. Um, and the condition is known to occur in domestic cats and dogs and in Tamandua, which apparently is another type of anteater, I just found out, uh, in the wild. But this is the first recorded case in a giant anteater. I tried to look up the sugar content in an ant earlier. <laughs> This is the kind of important research that keeps this podcast really high quality. Um, I did find one study that analysed hemolymph sugar levels in foragers of the ant Camontus rufipidis. Um, I mean, I can't even do that Latin. I'm going to try that again. Camponotus rufipidus ant, possibly. Something like that. Anyway, it looked into their dependence on the metabolic rate during feeding Um it wasn't especially revealing on exactly how many ants an anteater has to consume in order to become diabetic. Um, but uh, in any case, I hope Nala is is doing all right. I presume she's doing better. Now she has this jazzy little glucose monitor. She's indeed, I was going to say, I thought like eating insects was supposed to be like, they're supposed to be like a good source of protein. It's the it's, eco it's, way forward, isn't yeah, it? It's very trendy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that comes down on the pescatarian. Sorry, pescatarian, <laughs> I have no idea where that comes from me, uh, eating bugs. I'm sure i have to work it out. So to go back to Nala, uh, yep, she's doing great. So Dr. Stephanie Motor, who is the resident veterinary surgeon at the Royal Zoological Society Scotland, said that keepers had done an amazing job very quickly training Nala to take an insulin injection every day. But she said one of the big challenges for the team was how to continuously monitor her blood glucose levels to ensure that she was receiving the perfect dose. You know, taking daily blood samples was not an option. Sure. And, yeah. and they started initially by like monitoring the levels through urine samples, but obviously that's not brilliant. That's, you know, it's never going to be very precise. So, Dr. Motor said, the team decided to contact some companies who produce the human glucose monitors to try and streamline the process and find a way which would be least invasive for Nala. Uh, so the company Dexcom, who makes these uh, little monitors, they're kind of like little patches that you'll have seen, sort of people just get them stuck on their arm, yeah. uh, donated the monitor to the charity and keepers were able to apply it during one of Nala's training sessions. And it now means the team can regularly check her blood glucose levels through an app remotely. And uh, Dr. Mota said that Nala is the ideal candidate for this technology, in part because of her lovely personality. I just love this. She's a very sweet little, little anteater. Um, we'll pop some pictures of Nala wearing her little monitor on the website when this podcast goes out. Um, Fantastic. But yes, yeah. Good for you, Nala. And great to see some tech innovation happening in the sector as well. Yeah, the future is digital for sure. Amazing, innovative, creative thinking from the team just going, yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? And well, that, that's it. That's a wrap. You're all finished, Rebecca. So, just for our audience, we are in fact going to take a very brief hiatus next week while we transition into a Rebecca-free podcast environment. <laughs> um, but we will be back with another episode on Friday, the fifteenth of July. Who knows? It's going to be—it's a, a new era for Third Sector. Um, I will still be with you, um, and it, we will make it work. But you know, we're going to have a very vital piece of this machine missing. So, yes, we'll be taking an appropriate time out. Uh, If anyone wants to send us flowers, then please do feel free. (laughs) Send them onto the office. You Um, just want flowers. If you you want me to buy you flowers, I will buy you flowers. It's fine. (laughs) Oh, it's not necessary. But, (laughs) Rebecca, would you like to take us away one final time? Absolutely. Make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about that next episode. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And for the last time, uh, I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Claire Mills, and our colleague, Russell Hargrave, and to our producer, Aidan Lyons, at Rethink Audio. Uh, Normally, we'd say we'll see you next week. Uh, I think we'll say best of luck and bon voyage. Thank you.